hot flashes, vaginal dryness, painful sex, low libido, recurrent urinary tract infections, weight gain, insomnia, orgasm? What orgasm? Menopause is a very special time, and I'm betting you've not gotten a lot of information from your own doctor. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, a clinical professor of obstetrics and gynecology, the medical director of the Northwestern Medicine Center for Sexual Medicine and Menopause, a practicing gynecologist, best-selling author, and a nationally recognized menopause expert. My mantra has always been, if women are given good information, they'll make good choices. And I'm here to give you the inside information on all things menopause. Anyone who hangs out with me knows I spend a lot of time talking about the disparity between men's health and women's health, particularly when it comes to midlife women's health, whether it's heart disease, sexual health, kidney disease. Historically, far more dollars have been spent on research that has only included men. And don't get me started on the small amount of attention devoted to menopause, which affects literally 100% of women that live past the age of 50. For women of color, the situation is far more dire. Racial disparities are rampant in medicine. Not only do we know less about the impact of medical conditions or therapies in black women, but it is incredibly challenging for many black women to even access appropriate care. My guest today is Dr. Fenwa Milhouse, a board-certified urologist specializing in female pelvic floor medicine and reconstruction. Dr. Milhouse was born in Nigeria, but grew up in Texas. Following medical school at the University of Texas, Austin, she did her urology training at the University of Chicago, and lucky for me, decided to stay in the neighborhood. In addition to being a talented surgeon, she's an outspoken advocate against medical racism and racial disparities. And I'm guessing a lot of my listeners already follow her on TikTok and Instagram, where she educates millions of women about their bodies. So welcome, Dr. Milhouse. Thank you so much, Dr. Stryker. I'm, I'm, it's been looking forward to this meeting of ours, and I hope that your listeners enjoy this. And uh, thank you. Well, I've been looking forward to this too because I just I have so many things I want to ask you. Um, yeah. but we have to limit ourselves, right? So, <laughs> what I'd like to start with is: Can you talk about some of the specific medical conditions that disproportionately affect Black women? Sure. So when we talk about healthcare disparities in black women in particular, there are, you know, a couple that come out um, uh, right away. Number one, black women are uh, much more likely to have cardiovascular disease. Heart disease is the number one killer um, in women in the United States. And African-American and black women are much more likely than their white counterparts to have cardiovascular disease at earlier ages. Um, and they have complications and higher risk of death with cardiovascular disease. What do I mean by cardiovascular disease? This is the same thing as interchangeably we use as heart disease. And so what I'm talking about are strokes, heart attacks, chest pain, peripheral artery disease, where your arteries are clogged um, in your legs or your hands or other places, hypertension. And so that's a main, uh, a big killer for black um, women. The other thing that stands out is the maternal, black maternal um, death rate. And so the United States, one of, you know, one of the richest countries in the world has an alarmingly high maternal death rate for an industrialized nation. And Black women, regardless of socioeconomic status, um, are more than three times likely, three to four times more likely to die from a pregnancy related death than white women. In fact, um, somebody like me as educated 
as you know, resourceful as whatever I am, and still am at least three times, if not more, more likely to die in for, for pregnancy-related death than um than my white counterpart. That gap gets higher when we think of mothers that are over 30. Yeah. You know, I think of course when Serena Williams had her near brush with death, um, that really did increase awareness, not as much as it needs to, but certainly it yeah. did get people talking and, and there was some media attention to that. And but we don't get that kind of attention when it comes to cardiovascular disease and heart disease, which is as you know, you know, sky high. It's killer, yeah. and, and it's the killer. I mean, I mean, it's it's the number one killer of all women, but particularly in in the black population. So, mm-hmm. the question is, is when we look at risk factors, and certainly genetics is part of it. You know, some families, no matter what their race mm-hmm. is, are just going to be at higher risk based on genetics than than someone else. And certainly, we can look at lifestyle things and all that. But but one of the things I've thought about, and I'd love to know your your idea on this, is that black women. Um, more than anyone else have more hysterectomies and earlier hysterectomies. And that's something I learned when I wrote my first book about hysterectomy. And I was looking at the statistics and you can't help but be struck by not only the number, but how young these women are. Um, and a lot of this, of course, is because fibroids are so much more common um, in the black population, not only the number of fibroids, but they get them younger and they're worse yeah. and more bleeding and all that. So, okay. So my point is, is that you have a disproportionate number of women who not only are having hysterectomies, but sometimes inappropriately have early removal of their ovaries, which yep. then puts them into an early menopause, which in turn causes, we know early menopause is associated with heart disease. How much of an impact do you think that alone has in terms of the kinds of numbers we're seeing? Well, to put it in perspective, black women are twice as likely to get a hysterectomy and o- an ovarectomy or over ovary removal. And right. you don't, and again, why are we removing the ovaries in this woman is a big question, even with the increase at risk of uh, uterine fibroids. No, the, the, it's, it's, we know it's, what the answer to that question is. Yes. Because <laughs> it shouldn't be happening. Because it shouldn't be happening. You exactly. used to say presence of ovaries is not a reason to remove them um, just because you happen to be there. Yeah, just about exactly. And so there has to be that um, element. And hysterectomies are one of the most common surgeries, if not, I think the most common surgery performed. And so you have to think about all these, it's impacting t- swaths of, of, of women, yeah. swaths of black women, and how that plays into their earlier risk, again, of yeah. cardiovascular disease and um, mortality. That's right. And, and the things that, and you're right about black women having earlier menopause because of that and the numbers of hysterectomy, one out of three American women lose their uterus by age 60. And particularly in the South and black women, it can be as high as 50 to 60%. I mean, it's crazy. And, and we know that that has an enormous impact on, you know, cardiovascular health and high, you know, high blood pressure and all of that. So, so that brings up the other question while we're on the topic of menopause. And I know that you're a urologist, you're not a menopause you know, person, but I know you know a lot about it and we will get around to the bladder, which is in the neighborhood, I promise. But, <laughs> but you know, when we look in terms of, of young women who inappropriately lose their hormones, then you say, okay, but how about if they're put on hormone therapy? And mm. we also know statistically that, first of all, far too many women are not offered hormone therapy and they don't take it. Right now, only about 7 to 8% of menopausal women overall accept a prescription for estrogen for a variety of reasons. And I'm guessing that's even lower in the black population. Do you have numbers on that? Do you know? 
I don't have numbers, but it absolutely is lower. Black women are less likely to be treated with um, HRT or hormone replacement therapy, despite the fact that black women have are more likely to start menopause earlier yeah. and are more likely to be in this menopause transition symptoms and have more um, report, more um, hot flash. Well, then, right. Hot flashes are much worse. They yes. Okay. So, but the question yes. is why, why? why? Is it because okay. it's not offered? Is it because of the distrust of the medical system? Is yeah. it because they just have heard bad things about hormone therapy? What do you think it is or all of the above? No. Multiple. Yes. All of the above on multiple reasons. Yes. Not offered. I mean, if we think about the fact that women's symptoms tend to just, they don't, they don't tend to be taken as seriously couple that with race and gender bias, you know, black, um, um, patients are the least likely to be offered pain medicine, even after a surgery, you know? Um, so there's that, but there also is this thought of like hormone replacement not being natural. And that is probably even more pervasive thought in the black community. Well, my auntie didn't have to do that. My mom didn't do that because those women just bared through it. And if you talk to any black woman, they'll, they'll talk about this, this strength that we're just supposed to endure. We're supposed to the tough it out mentality. We are strong. We are women. We don't need this. You know, you know, exactly. Just, you know, and so it's a lot of that. Well, no, I don't, they don't really seriously consider it and aren't really educated well on the, the benefits um, uh, of it. And so it's, there is, and then there's, then again, you mentioned the mistrust of, um, the medical community. I mean, with we, good reason. With good reason. Yeah. Yes. I mean, part of the reason why hysterectomies are really prevalent, especially in the South and black women is because it is, was just done even without um, uh, proper consent. No, it was, and they're not given options. They're, yes. The not given. Has been yes. Done, you know, you know that I mean, yes. we talk about, there's not enough research in black women, which we would all agree is the fact that yes. that one has been done that they, you know, black women are not given alternatives to hysterectomy. But you said something really interesting. I want to go back to because mm-hmm. you talked about how their mothers, your the aunties, all of that. So that means they're actually talking about menopause hello i mean you know i know i mean we talk about this all the time and you know in in, in the general population mothers are not talking to their daughters about menopause like when they get their first period and they say here's you know a pad and a tampon honey no one says oh it's your first hot flash this is what you should do so is that different in i mean of course every family is different but you know is can you make a sweeping generalization that menopause is talked about i don't think so in fact when you think about menopause, black voices are often completely left out. When you think about menopause, the experiences and the stories are not passed through black the black lens. OK, yeah. so I don't believe that they're really directly talking about it. And if they do, it's I think it's a very small little, you know, a glimpse. And it's again, there's this mentality of just like, oh, be, you know, it's not natural. It's, which is, well, I always tell people what's natural for women is to have as many babies as possible and then die because <laughs> that's what we're put on earth to do. And we do all kinds of things that aren't natural. And, you know, we can, the list is long, including those glasses I see you wearing. Yes. You know, it, what's more natural is just to not wear glasses. We, we do all kinds of things exactly. to be able to en- enhance our ability to, to be functional. All right. Correct. So if Serena Williams kind of is the celebrity who got people talking a little bit about um, the increased complication rate in pregnancy. Who's the black celebrity that you'd like to see out there talking about menopause? Do you have one in mind? 
Oh, Angela. That would make a difference. Angela Bassett, um, Viola Davis. Oh, Viola Davis. You know Mm her? (laughs) I don't. Um, Our lovely Michelle Obama. (laughs) She has Um, a little bit, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she is. I was actually, um, um, it's actually kind of a funny story, but I had my first hot flash when I was at a fundraiser with Michelle, um, President Obama, and, and he walked on stage and I had a hot flash and I thought, Oh, is that menopause or is that just, <laughs> just <laughs> Obama? Was he was a senator or was this when he was President Obama? This was actually or when he was, he was president, but I met him yeah. when he was a senator, which is a whole yes. nother. I was actually on the stage getting an award for something and he made a surprise appearance when he was a senator and he came up to me and he said, I feel so bad, but can I go first? And I'm like, oh, are you kidding? You know, yeah. <laughs> but I, went, I didn't take any chances and I started estrogen immediately um, just in case. There probably was a little bottom. bit of both. Like, ooh. <laughs> yeah, it was both. It was both. Okay, but yeah. let's go. Be- All right. So. But while we're on the the topic of celebrities, and I'm going to move over to the bladder a little bit, just because I know that's your home base. Mm -hmm. Can we talk about Whoopi Goldberg for a minute? I mean, here we have Whoopi Goldberg. On one hand, she brought awareness to incontinence and kudos to her for that. On the other hand, she normalized women wearing diapers as opposed to getting help for their Mm -hmm. leaky bladders. Yeah. Do you want to comment on that? So number one, Overall, kudos to bringing awareness to something that is so very pervasive. I mean, yeah, so about taboo topic, you know. Yeah, but one so out of three women, more probably. Yeah. And this is one of oh, um, overactive bladder leakage tends to be more common in Black women, whereas stress incontinence leakage tends to be more common in White and um, Hispanic women. But the, there's a lot of leaky women. Period. Right. Um, I think that. Far too often, this is one of the other things where people are not presented options, you know, and so, oh, you, you know, got some incontinence. Well, you know, there's very little we can do. We may try, you know, depending on try medicine or some, you know, try doing some Kegels. It's just Kegels, just Kegels, because Kegels, yeah. you know, I always listen, talk to Kegels so the cows come home and it's not. exactly whenever I'm exactly. talking to a big group of women, I always say, OK, raise your hand. If you do Kegels and like every hand in the audience goes up and then I'll say, keep your hand up if it helped you. And like every hand goes, goes down. down. I know I don't want to poo poo Kegels and certainly not phys- pelvic floor physical therapy, but we know that that doesn't help majority of people, especially if your incontinence is severe. And so they stop there. And I think it's an example of that there certainly are options for whoopi goldberg and her leakage you know and i Don't you just want to have that conversation yes. with her and say whoopi come yes. on are you kidding have come you never heard me. of public floor physical therapy have you never- yes or botox or sacronormodulation or um there are some devices that if you don't want to go, you know, there are things that people can do um, short of wearing diapers. You know, diapers are a way to manage your incontinence. It's it's not a way. Yeah. Yeah. Talking to the choir here. But, you know, it's just it's frustrating because when you have someone like that who has um, so much power to Mm -hmm. get those messages across, it's kind of like years ago when I was on Oprah. Um, talking about was me and Oprah and Suzanne Summers. You can only mm-hmm. imagine that conversation. <laughs> and, you know, and I'm thinking, okay, and Oprah has this huge stage to really make a difference and to talk to women about safe hormone therapy and how important it is. And, and it didn't happen. And yeah. it was just, I, I just, 
kind of a wasted opportunity, you know, and I think that's the way I look at the, the Whoopi Goldbergs. And I don't mean to bash yeah. Whoopi Goldberg, but I mean, it's just, yeah. it, it has always struck me that here's this woman who has this platform and, you know, could really make a difference, not just for black women, but just women you yeah. know, in general. All right. So I interrupted baby steps. The first main thing is, listen, they're, she's talking about incontinence. I mean, no one talks about this. Well, and that's true. And and if that starts the conversation going, then the next part of the conversation is, is what options we have. Now we just need to get someone out there talking about fecal incontinence. You know, leaky bowels is the other big taboo topic. That's a real conversation stopper wherever I am. I don't know about you. Oh, totally. When I ask patients, they're like, I think half of them are thinking, should I be honest or not? Or not, you know, more than half of them, 100% of them are like, oh, should I answer this honestly or not? You know, you know, though, I have found that when I start by saying a lot of women have problems with not only leaky bowels, leaky bladders, but also leaky bowels, is that an issue for you? Mm -hmm. Somehow, um, they, they will be, you know, be glad to talk about it as opposed to when they're not even asked. And we know that women don't want to bring that stuff up. Even they're never, they're they not going to bring it up. They're not going to bring asked. it up, even though they are not alone, not yes. alone. So I interrupted you when you were talking about things that are more common in, in the black population. So we covered cardiovascular disease, fibroids, early menopause. What else are we missing? Oh, and, and the obstetric stuff, of course. What else? Is there anything else that you think is really important? So there are some studies that show that like uh, that depression um, is more common or depressive um, symptoms are more commonly reported. While again, this is one of those things like, okay, but they're most but less likely to be treated. Um, And so this gets into the burden of um, chronic inequity, chronic, you know, socioeconomic stress the burden of racism. So you have this inequity, socioeconomic stress, um, and, um, and also racism as a stressor, you know, black Mm -hmm. women are more likely to be single mothers are more likely to, you know, have, um, less economic, um, stability and these things. And so, um, all of that bakes into our psycho, psychologic and our biologic processes, but then there is this disproportionate, you know, treatment or um, the uh, gap between treatment um, and addressing these things. Yeah. So let's talk about treatment then, because now that we've talked about the things that are um, far more common than um, you would hope that if something was more common in a population, that there would be more treatment. And that's not the case. And when we think in terms of treatment, there's really two parts to it. The one is, to, do you know how to treat these things? Has there been adequate research and attention paid to it? And then there is access to, to care. So let's talk about research first. Can you talk a little bit about the missing research in, in terms of black women? Well, there is a dearth of really good Um, research that has good representation of black women. A lot of research around women's issues, women health are not, are homogeneous. Okay. They don't include black women. And so it can create, it can make results that aren't representative of the diverse society that we live in and the diverse patient population that we serve. Part of it of this is recruiting 
women, black women, black patients. Um, and so there are there are more of a push and initiatives, not only coming from the science community, but coming from the black community that, hey, we need to be included in science. We need we we can't, we need these facts and these data so that we know where we need to yeah. fill in the gaps. But how do we get past, you know, we, we mentioned earlier that there's a suspicion of, um, of, of just medical research in general and medical treatment. And again, you know, good reason, not, not yes. at all. But, but how do we get past that so that we get women to be included in the research, to be included in clinical trials? I mean, even when we look at vaccine hesitancy, which we know is an enormous problem in something that was, you know, was not experimental, even when it was completely accepted that this was safe and appropriate, we know that there was real resistance in the the black community. Um, So what do we do? How do we get past that? How do we get women to participate? I think we can't, we got to stop being like telling people what to do and kind of start by meeting them where they are. Part of it is, okay, talk to me about what's your, what your hesitancy is, what your, you know, ask and get and devolve in that, take that time. You see what I'm saying? Versus just being like, Oh, well, this is good. It's good. Good for you. It's good for you. It's good for you. And you're not hearing the patient. Most a lot of um, black women will report that they feel that they haven't been heard in their encounters with medical professions. So we're not doing a good job of connecting right. with patients. If we can't connect with them, how are we going to convince them to be involved in any kind of research that we're doing? Do you think, though, when we when we look at, at the, the obstacles, the challenges, it's one thing if you are sitting across from a woman who says, okay, I trust her. She looks mm-hmm. like me. Um, whatever she says, I'm going to be okay with that. And then she sits across from me and she's like, are you kidding? I don't really care what you think. I, you know, as, as someone who's as, as, as much as I can, I'm trying to be anti-racist and I'm trying to, you know, to do the good job. I, I sometimes feel like I just, no matter what I do, um, it's not going to, it's not going to work. Is it, what's your advice? What, what do I do? We need more black physicians, more diverse physicians. We do. We need studies have, it's not only just a feeling, but studies have shown, and this is a sad, I'm not proud of this statistic, but studies have shown that black patients have better outcomes with black providers that not even black patients, but um, Latina women have better outcomes with rate, you know, with um, ethnicity matched providers. So um, we see that with gender too. We know that women patients have better outcomes with women physicians than they do with male physicians. Patients have better outcomes with women physicians, period. (laughs) That is true. That is absolutely true. And we know that women physicians listen. I think that that's such a key thing, no matter what we're doing, that you have to listen and um, and spend more time and actually sit down with the patient instead of being halfway out the room or staring at their computer. So there are all those things which women are, quite frankly, better at. And I don't want to bash all of our male counterparts. Oh, no, not at all. Incredible. Yes. But um, But, uh, to to your point, I have walked into a room and the patient sees me and and will say, Dr. Milas, I just have to tell you, this is the first time I feel seen. Like, I feel seen. But is that because you are doing or saying anything different or just because you happen to be black? You know what? It, it, there is just this, wow, she looks like me. She 
she can, I feel like she can get me Yeah, instantly. And that happens with, I would say uh, black women, but black men. I mean, I have, and more and more, I would say, even, I think um, the black community as a whole is, is it wants people that look like them, especially in medicine to, to, to listen to. And so I will have patients even today, um, you know, an older gentleman, I walked in and she, he was like, I'm just so happy to be here and happy to see you walking, walk in, you know, um, as a, as a black physician, I don't, I, you know, we, we don't, there's only 5% of physicians that are black. And so it's, um, there's a Darth gap. Right. And, 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 and I'm imagine the numbers of yes. female urologists who are black is like oh, one, like, like less point than one. Oh, 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 yes. oh, 1% or something. Yes. So, yes. So let me ask you this, because you trained at University of Chicago, and I'm obviously very familiar with the University of Chicago. I did some training there as well. And University of Chicago, I think, is is unique in that not only are you in a, in a very large black population, but I think that in terms of the numbers of black physicians that they have, um, it's much higher than you're going to see at other academic major medical centers and of really amazing physicians. I mean, no one's at University of Chicago who isn't tops, tops, tops. And so I would imagine there that the patients that you would see both black and white would be very accepting of you and comfortable with you and that wouldn't be an issue. But now you're not at the University of Chicago. You are <laughs> practicing in the suburbs. Suburbs. In the suburbs. <laughs> so let's switch gears a little bit and talk about the opposite situation. Do you experience racism as a physician from white women who come to see you? Certainly. And most so most of it is in the form of my, what we call microaggressions. Microaggressions, yes. I, Micro- have, I have daughters in their 30s, so I hear about microaggressions all the time. Yes. So microaggressions are the everyday forms of racism. Racism is rarely like bull in our face, although I, I've had that. But um, but it's the slights and the insults that just get passed around that are at the burden of the of people that are marginalized. Okay. It's the, is your hair real? Like, why are you, why would you ask that of me? You see what I'm saying? It's yeah. the, um, you know, calling me Fenwa and not, and then referring to all your other doctors as doctor. Doctor. But that's yeah. also something that just happens to women. I mean, that happens women to me all the time. Oh yes. Yes. It's you know, the, someone will walk in and say, do you know, you know, I'm looking for a good place to buy, you know, shoes. Cause I like your shoes. Where should I buy shoes? And I'm thinking would, if I was a male physician, would you ask me that? <laughs> exactly. Correct. Um, so microaggressions are, um, uh, pervasive. Some of them are more macro and micro doesn't mean they're like insignificant. It's just the not subtle, obvious subtle, things like, yes, boy, you're subtle. really smart implying like, I never would have thought someone like, you know, who looks like you'd oh, be really yes. smart. Correct. Yes. And then there's some that are micro macro. I had a patient tell me jokingly was like, Oh, slavery wasn't all bad. Like, a, and made that as a joke. Yes. Yes. I can't so, even imagine. Yes. Um, you know, and it's, it's, I'm like looking at the patient, I'm like, here you are with tubes coming up the wazoo. Here you are needing me. Like what would possess you to taunt the person that is trying to help you in any kind of way? Um, I had another patient who decided that it was her place to tell me that her, she didn't like my, my hair, you know, um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, you know, so it, you know, and By again, the way, I think your hair looks fabulous while we're on the topic you. of your hair. Thank you. Well, thank you. Yes. You know, and um, 
So, and again, we as women in medicine definitely can, that's a whole nother, that's a whole podcast in and of itself can talk about microaggressions galore, gender-based. Um, it's, you know, again, it's a bit of a double whammy um, as a black woman. The other type, the other face of it is microaggression within the healthcare system. So, you know, talk, patients are one thing, but like when my, from colleagues, from, you know, other healthcare professionals, when you aren't feeling, you know, feel that you are not welcomed, that's a whole nother thing. Okay. But so let me, so I don't, the hospital where you are now, what percentage yeah. of the medical staff are um, men and women of color? Not a lot. Okay. <laughs> I mean, when you mean and, staff, and, and, are you talking about physicians? Yeah. I'm talking about physicians. <sighs> I mean, this is, we're talking the suburbs of Naperville and Hinsdale. Right. I mean, these, this is, I'm, I would say 2%. Yeah. But, and the yeah. reason I ask is because again, you came from University of Chicago and I don't know what the numbers are there, but they're significantly higher. Yes. So did you feel less of that when you were at University of Chicago? I felt, I felt great at the University of Chicago. Yeah. I felt, you know, I, you know, there were definitely some patient directed things, but within the system, I felt I felt very much at home. There was definitely multiple people that looked at l- looked like me that were physicians that were a part of the team. Um, I was the third black woman to be at my program. That's pretty. I mean, that sounds like only th- a third. That's huge. That's nothing. You look at but the number of women in huge, urology. Huge for huge. urology. Huge for one yeah. program to have trained three black women in. When I matched in 2008. But to your you point, know. that's why we need more black physicians. Yes. Because yes. it has to be normalized so that when a physician walks in the room, you're not thinking, you shouldn't even be thinking about that if you're sick. Yeah. It's, you know, it's like I once had an accident out of town and, and so um, they brought me to the emergency room and I had to go for surgery. And the only question I had when this person walked in the room that I act, honestly do not remember what this person looked like, but the only thing I said to them is, where did you train? And they told me where they trained, and I'm like, it was someplace good. And I said, there is a God. Fine, off to the. Okay. Yeah. But that's how it should be, not you know. Yeah, yeah. Not, agree. Not yeah, good. and so we 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 need to be, um, and and we all have implicit bias, and we all have, and the problem is we don't tap into that. <sighs> Um, and when we tap into our bias, then we can combat our bias and then we can start to relate to patients. Then we can start changing our actions that might actually change patient outcomes. Um, you know, and so we really need to be introspective and tap into what is our bias. And there are implicit bias tests and implicit association tests where you can get started and you can take one. I took a test and I was swayed more towards white women than black women. I'm a black woman and I'm more biased. It, uh, I am biased against black women, according to this test. You know, it's very profound. The things so maybe the test was biased. No, it's the internalized inferiority of yeah. in society that can do that to you. Well, you know, it's interesting that you would say that because when um, when I went into medicine, and of course there weren't that many white women or mm-hmm. any women in in gynecology, and a lot of women um, would tell me, "I I don't want to go to a woman gynecologist." And when I would say why, they would say, "Well." 
I don't know if women are really smart enough to be gynecologists. It was this bias about if you are a woman, you you can't be, there's no way you could be as smart, smart. as a man. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, we, we have problems with bias. We would all like to think that we are, you know, neutral, that we give and there and, and give the same um, treatment. By the way, you don't want to give the same you want to give an equitable treatment. You right. see what I'm saying? Right. You don't want to give the same. You know, if you have a patient who is deaf, you don't want to give the same type of counseling that you would give the person who isn't deaf. You see what I'm saying? So anyway, we would all think that we are impartial. But the truth is we live in a male-dominated, heteronormative, white society that um, it permeates into our you know, subconscious thoughts, our feelings, um, and and our um, likes and dislikes, and so we have to tap into that. Having, finding out, and and acknowledging your bias doesn't make you a bad person. Having bias, and and acknowledging it actually makes you a human person, and that is an important part of anti racism and of giving, um, you know, more equitable care. Do you think things are getting better, or do you think things are getting worse? You know, I think, you know, we take two steps forward and then we take like two take steps back, you know, it's like, you know, this pendulum goes like this, this, this and this. Um, Definitely talking about it. I mean, where I worked, we didn't even have a DEI committee until um, 2020. Explain to everyone what a DEI committee is. Diversity, equity and inclusion. So um, it's and, and, and any business should have this. <laughs> yeah. um, it's good for business. But yeah, basically, it's what, you know, the body or committee that keep brings awareness not only to diversity, but uh, fosters and implements changes and policies that make sure that there is an inclusive environment. It's not enough to just have quotas of this person, that person, brown, black, you know, whatever, white quotas. That is not enough. That will not make for an inclusive environment. Okay. But you have to do things. It has to be an active thing to have an inclusive process. This is an active thing, not reactive. Um, And so things are getting better. Um, The surgeon's lounge honestly, you know, was not the friendliest place for me. Oh, come on. It's never been a friendly place for anybody. <laughs> I know it's been a... We I'm can go on like, about, you know, for a woman to walk into I the can. surgeon's lounge. Surgeon's lounge used to be, when I first started, it was like only in the men's locker room was the wow. surgeon's lounge. Yeah. Yeah. The surgeon's lounge is a whole story in and of itself. It's, it's a whole thing. It's a whole yeah. thing. Yes. Well, yes. it's a little microcosm of... It's, yes. Of, yeah. So, you know, I'd walk, I'd prepare myself, like I got to be on guard. I'm walking in and just be on guard the whole time, you know, and I'm still like that 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 happens is, and of course this happens with women in general, but certainly more in your situation that um, they assume that you're a nurse or, and there's nothing wrong with being a nurse. I mean, I'm not putting down nurses, but I'm just saying that, that, that there's this assumption. If I used to be, um, people always thought I was the social worker because um, I dress nice and I like clothes. So, you know, social workers, I guess 
generally dressed dress nice. nice. So people were always saying, oh, are you the new social worker? Yeah. I'm like, no, I'm actually the, the new physician on, on this service. So it oh, was yes. always kind of strange. I have, a, I have a shirt when I'm on call that says, nah, I'm the doctor. Like I wear it on call because listen, it's just, I'm never assumed to be the ever, 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 ever. I mean, I'm a woman, I'm black and I'm young, please. No one's thinking. So I just wrote the, I am the doctor. Okay. Now there's no questions. I love that. Yeah. (laughs) I hope you have a lot of those shirts. Yes. 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 In every color. Yes. All right. So let's, let's, I'm going to ask you a question that um, I'm, I'm really curious your answer because I, one of the things I do is I interview medical students or prospective medical students for admission to Northwestern where I am. And I always like to ask questions that get them thinking a little bit out of the box. So mm-hmm. one question, one of my favorite questions is if I gave you a hundred million dollars that was completely unrestricted. You could do whatever you wanted with this money, completely up to you. But if you took this money and did something to decrease racial disparity in healthcare, what would you do with that money? So I'm going to give you, thank you very much. I'm going to give you a hundred million dollars and you tell me what you would do with that money. So before I answer, I need to tell the audience that the biggest impact to racial disparities is social determinants of health, or you can consider, think about them like socioeconomic factors, where you grow up, where you live, where you go to school, where you're employed, where you get educated, your transportation, your environmental um, exposure, your zip code, okay, and your access is tied to your health. And for the black community in the United States, it's been a generational, chronic, perpetuated structural inequity when we talk about socioeconomic factors. This is ingrained and baked into America. Okay, we, you know, redlining, which redlining is where you cut up neighborhoods that are less desirable, i.e. black neighborhoods, and you restrict and um, how things are lended and invested in and, and those things. And that creates a chronic inequity. And even though redlining is illegal, redlining is still, un, you know, practiced in ways. You know, one of the most stark fact, um, facts that the NPR Chicago brought up, Chicago is a great, great example mm-hmm. of of um, structural racism that combined all the black communities in Chicago combined were invested less in than one white neighborhood in Chicago, Lincoln Park. So I know I would, that. I, that's a statistic yeah. I've heard before and yep. I'm ashamed of it, but I know yes. that to be the case. And so if you want there to be changes in disparities in our health, we're not talking about crime, but even crime, we that money has to be invested into these basic things we need that money. I would take that money and, and invest it into public works and a physical and, and, and physical education um, in black and Brown communities. I would take that money and I would no child left behind, truly left behind. Okay. Pro- education with not just going to a school, but going to a good school where you don't have to, we don't have to have charter schools. You don't have to have money to get a good education, to get a proper education. I would 
um, invest in uh, food deserts. Food deserts are these neighborhoods that are relatively devoid of like proper nutrition, proper, you know, well-balanced groceries and good, healthy items. I lived in when I was in Chicago, I lived in Woodlawn, a neighborhood that is predominantly black. And I saw the difference when I went to go visit my friends in the South Loop or anywhere else. You had grocery store, grocery store, grocery store, grocery store, just line them up down where I lived. It was a drive to the nearest grocery store. Yeah. Now think about people who don't have cars. Think about people have to use the bus and the train system. Forget it in the south, oh, it's south so side. I mean, but it's also we, but we look at yeah. the proliferation of fast food. Yes, and, oh, and because it's everywhere, and and mm-hmm. because it's very accessible, and because it's cheap, and then you wonder why there are problems in lower income areas with diabetes and obesity and yes. heart disease. It's because those folks don't really have an option for what they're going to eat. It's not like they can just go and get fresh vegetables easily. There's something called fundamental attribution error, and it gets applied heavily to minority communities. It's basically where you just overemphasize people's, you know, bad, you know, choices without looking at the factors and the system in place that Mm -hmm. perpetuates this. So you bring up the food, fast food availability. Yes, Fast um, minority neighborhoods are loaded with fast food, quick, cheap options. The other undesirable that is undesirables that are higher density in minority communities, tobacco stores and liquor stores are in higher density in black and brown communities. So it's I mean, it's 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 when you get into this, it makes you like rage uh, because you realize this is a a whole system that needs to be changed right and it's it's there's many layers to that many including layers. including one that I heard a very interesting woman who wrote a book about the fact that there's basically no black owned businesses in these food deserts yep. and uh, and how difficult it is not only to access food, but for people who have the most investment in it to be able to provide that because yeah. these businesses are all owned by outsiders. So we have a lot of work to do. I wish I had a hundred million dollars to give yes. you because I know you would do really good stuff with that money. Thank so you. <laughs> when you do come find me, okay. I will, you will be at the top of the list, top of the list. So what else? Is there anything else? I mean, I know there's a million things that, that you yes. would love to talk about, but we only have a few minutes here. So last words, what else would you like to talk about? So um, I think I would implore your uh, audience members to um, support initiatives that are trying to drive these disparities and gaps. There's something called Black, uh, I think it's called Black Women Initiative. It's a nonprofit that is geared towards um, addressing the health gap in black women and black girls. Um, and, and I will put that in the program notes yes. so that people will know yep. where to find all yep. that information. Yeah. And, um, you know, and, and, and not only is it just giving with your, with your money, but your vote, <laughs> your vote, Oh, I don't want to be know, political, I, but I, I try and stay away from politics because it only gets me in trouble. Sure. But it's hard for me because votes matter. Elections matter. And people people actually said I put a post the other day about what's going on in our country with reproductive rights, which is a whole yeah. other thing. And, and someone said something along the lines of stick to medicine. And oh, I, no. I don't I don't <laughs> respond to these because you just go down the black hole. You do. But I wanted to say 
since when are reproductive rights not medicine? I mean, what could be more medical than that? You know, what than, could be more per- pertinent to you, what you who what you exactly, do? That? Exactly. Oh, 100 percent. Yeah, yes. that's a whole that's a whole nother that's a whole nother thing. But think about like, you know, vote at every level, you know, local water not reclamation just, district. Do you yes. know that's an entry? They get in and the water. I know this sounds ridiculous, but someone was once telling me you have to pay attention to those people because yeah. they get their foot in the door and then they're on to the next election and up and up and up. OK, yes, exactly. We have to pay attention. We just have to take the time to pay attention. And uh, um, so not only use your money, but use your voice in the form of voting um, and activism if you're led to that direction as well. It makes a difference. It does. And these little differences add up to big differences. And add up to true societal changes. Yes, it does. So, thank you so much. It has been thank such you. a pleasure talking to you. And we're going to put um, your links and information in the program notes because I have just started following you on Instagram. And oh my God, <laughs> it's amazing. We didn't even get to talk about that, but everyone just has to follow you so they can find yes. you on their own because it is an extraordinary education in um, in, in women's health and mm-hmm. urology oh, and yeah. We could, yeah, there's so much work to be done just in that area alone. But thank you. Thank you. And you're welcome. And we yeah, people can find me on it. They can find me on Instagram. If you just hashtag your favorite urologist, you'll find me. Your favorite or, urologist. That's or right, at Dr. Urologist. Milhouse. Well, you're my favorite urologist thank, already. So thank you. I appreciate it. Come for the laps and get educated and get inspired, basically. So love it. Love it. Love it. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, and thank you for joining me. You will find lots more information in my Inside Information books available on Amazon.com. And follow Francie as she navigates her way through vaginal dryness, hot flashes, and pretty much every menopausal symptom you can think of. I'm